This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, lessons the Pentagon can learn from Russia's failures in a potential conflict between the U.S. and China. Then, providing insight into how a war over Taiwan could unfold, wargaming a U.S. response. And a funding impasse looms for pandemic relief, how the White House might have to ration vaccines. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. A major flaw in Russia's invasion plan was their lack of attention to logistics. My guest says that that should serve as a warning to U.S. forces in planning for a war in the Indo-Pacific. Mike Watson is the associate director of the Hudson Institute Center for the Future of Liberal Society. Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. So what do we know about Russian military mistakes when it comes to logistics and their resupply convoys? So one of the things that's shocked most people about this war is how many different kinds of failures the Russian military has exhibited over the last couple months. But one of the biggest problems they had, particularly in the first round of the war, was uh, just not being able to get the stuff to their troops that they needed. So part of that was that uh, they're very dependent on railway systems, uh, basically just because it's a very large country and moving anything around by truck is kind of a nightmare, right? And uh, it turns out when they started invading, they realized they didn't have the uh, right equipment to get uh, fuel, ammo, food, and things like that to their troops on the front line. And uh, the Ukrainians were very clever about uh, exploiting that vulnerability. Uh, one of the reasons why you had that 40-mile-long convoy that just more or less stopped for several weeks is that they just couldn't move their stuff after a while uh, because they couldn't get things from the back of the convoy to the front. And, um, you know, uh, it's ended up uh, being one of those kind of uh, uh, little details that if you miss it, it ends up having a huge outsized impact and it's caused huge problems for the Russians. So let's talk about um, lessons for the American military mm -hmm. learning from that. And let's start with fuel requirements. Mm -hmm. How vulnerable does that requirement make American military forces in fighting so far away from mm -hmm. home uh, as in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah. So, um, you know, part of uh, how kind of uh, warfare works now is that you have a little bit of a rock, paper, scissors component to it, right? So uh, in, in our case, you know, most of our submarines and our aircraft carriers are powered by nuclear reactors that are on board. And so they can go for a very, very long time. But in the case of a, a, an aircraft carrier, right, if you don't have like uh, other ships around to protect it from uh, enemy submarines or enemy aircraft or whatnot, then that aircraft carrier is actually not very useful. It's just kind of like a very expensive target. Um, so uh, basically for aircraft carriers, they, they maneuver around in groups with other ships around and those ships need fuel. And um, we don't really, uh, we haven't made the investments we should have probably over the last uh, couple decades to make sure that we can get our people what they need. So the military projects that it needs 86 tanker ships to move fuel around mm -hmm. the Pacific. We're nowhere near that. Right, yeah, I think we're at nine or so that we own. And uh, the current backup plan is, uh, you know, once those nine ships have been assigned to start renting out uh, other fuel tankers that, you know, do other stuff for other countries. And um, this makes a lot of sense in a war where the other guy is gonna just kind of wait for you to show up and hit them, like the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, but, you know, uh, I. 
I question how viable that strategy is going to be if uh, we're asking people to uh, sign up for a gig where uh, they're going to be on a large target full of flammable things that the, uh, your opponent's going to try to sink. So you recommend that the Navy um, uses the U.S. merchant fleet. How right. would that work? So uh, basically, you know, um, merchant shipping right now is a very, uh, very low margin endeavor, right? So it, it's going to cost something. But I, I do think that at this point it would probably make sense for us to uh, try to uh, basically uh, more uh, deliberately pick American flagged, American owned, American crewed ships to uh, resupply our uh, forces that are already uh, moving around uh, the Pacific instead of renting out. Uh, but, but this would mean they would need to go into a war zone. Are, mm -hmm. are they going to be okay with that? I mean, you know, if you sign up for the Merchant Marine, that's part of the deal, right? Okay. Uh, so uh, my understanding is that pretty much everybody who has signed up to that at least um, has agreed that that's one of the risks that they're running, right? So uh, I tend to think that that's probably more reliable to, you know, recruit volunteers who already know that that's part of the deal instead of later on trying to hire somebody who may think, hey, you know, you know, uh, I get that America and China have a fight, but I'm from, you know, somewhere else. and. It's not my problem. I don't have a dog in this fight. Right, exactly. <laughs> what yeah. about the Air Force, Mike? I mean, mm -hmm. for these long ranges, the fighters are going to need to be refueled. Right, exactly. And I think it's something like 80% of our combat aircraft are uh, fighters that uh, just don't have the range to you know, get from some of our bases, either in the Central uh, or Eastern Pacific, out to uh, where we're hoping to fight uh, anybody if there's a conflict in the, in the Western Pacific. And uh, we have a lot of... Uh, aircraft like refueling um, uh, like uh, platforms like the KC-135, that's our, our kind of the workhorse of our fleet, but those planes on average are about 60 years old. Uh, and you know, if anyone's uh, owned a car that's about 15 years old, you know, you get used to the idea of, like it, it breaks down when you don't expect it to and it costs a lot more than you think it's going to repair it. And uh, obviously a plane is, um, you know, more complicated and all that, but uh, like this, there's a similar principle, a 60-year-old plane is uh, not something you necessarily want to rely on when you absolutely need to get stuff to where it needs to go. So Mike, would this just mm -hmm. mean that the Pentagon needs to go all in on electrification mm -hmm. and searching for alternate fuel mm -hmm. uh, sources? I think that, you know, that's something that we should continue exploring, right? Uh, the problem right now is that, so if you think of uh, electrification, uh, batteries right now are, are just uh, not um, uh, like dense enough uh, as far as energy to uh, replace fuel. So. You know, we, we don't really have that many examples of useful electric-powered aircraft, for example. And, uh, you know, electric-powered ships, um, I have not seen anything uh, that looks like it could be deployable soon. So that may be a uh, solution for, let's say, you know, a few decades down the line. But as of right now, it's not a, a particularly viable option. So I think we kind of need to explore to see what, what kind of cutting-edge technologies are coming out, but also make sure that we have what we need right now. And very quickly, I mean, one last recommendation you would make to the Pentagon on this. Yeah, uh, the other recommendation I'd make for that is, uh, you know, there's a bunch of things that we already know how to do. Uh, they just cost a little bit of money. Um, so some of that is, uh, you know, uh, better protecting the fuel uh, uh, supplies that we have in the Pacific from uh, aerial bombardment or whatnot. Uh, some of that is making it a little bit easier for us to get uh, fuel from uh, like a tanker offshore onto land if you don't have a port that works anymore because it's been bombed, right? Um, so there are some things like that that I think with a little bit of uh, investment we could probably make a lot better. All right, Mike, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me on.
Coming next, wargaming and attack on Taiwan by China, and what the Pentagon can learn from it. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. It's the year 2027, and China has just attacked Taiwan. That's the scenario for an operational war game called Dangerous Straits, Battle for Taiwan 2027. And it was led by the Gaming Lab at the Center for a New American Security. Becca Wasser is a fellow for the Defense Program and co-lead of the Gaming Lab at CNAS. Becca, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So who won? Well, the long story is nobody really won. At the end of the game, no one felt as though they had won, but they also didn't feel as though they had lost. What really unfolded is most likely going to be a longer, more protracted conflict where both China and the U.S. might be dug in for some time. So let's talk about how the game is set up. There's a blue team, a red team, and a white team. So the blue team is the United States, the red team is the China team, and the white team, or the white cell, it's the CNAS uh, team who designed the war game. And so all of these teams have different objectives. The blue team is trying to defend Taiwan and protect the U.S. homeland. The red team in this war game was trying to forcibly unify with Taiwan while still protecting uh, Chinese leaders and their own territory as well. So how do you pick the, the members of the teams? So How do you get that gig? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> well, we'll keep you on speed dial for next time. Uh, but usually, you're trying to look for the folks who have the requisite experience, who have either been in government before, if they are going to be you know, putting on the hat of a policymaker, they've had that job before. Or they are the top subject matter expert when it comes to China's military and defense strategy. You want to have the smartest people in the room because your game is only as good as your players are. Was there a particular reason that 2027 was picked? So 2027 has come up a few times by a variety of different uh, U.S. military leaders. Uh, in particular, one of the former uh, commanders of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command has said that that might be the window in which we might see China try to invade Taiwan. And this is in part because of uh, some of China's military modernization and China's potential belief that they could be almost caught up to U.S. military power by the year 2027. So that's when they'll be ready to take on the United States. So that's when they could be ready, but there's so many things that go into it, right? You can modernize your military, you can buy as much equipment and develop as much capability, but as we've seen in places like Ukraine, you also need to be able to uh, train with that, you need to have the will to fight, and you need to have so many other factors that come into play. So there is a chance that China could be ready by 2027, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's when they would decide to potentially invade Taiwan. Becca, is it a foregone conclusion that the U.S. would need to make a military response to a Chinese attack on Taiwan? 
So this is the tricky thing about the U.S. stance of strategic ambiguity when it comes down to Taiwan. It's unclear exactly how and whether the United States would come to Taiwan's aid. But the U.S. Department of Defense and other senior leaders, including folks in the White House, have been very vocal about the fact that they are more likely to come to Taiwan's aid and defend Taiwan. So uh, a lot of the research that we have been doing and a lot of folks at the Department of Defense, the analysis that they've been doing, really does, uh, is predicated on defending Taiwan. What are some of the lessons that you learned from this war game, aside from it's going to be a protracted war? So I would say, aside from the fact that it's going to be a protracted conflict, there's sort of two top lessons learned for me. The first one is uh, the power that U.S. allies and partners can bring to bear in such a potential conflict. Uh, this is not only military power, but also strategic significance, what it means for the United States and a bunch of other countries to be coming to Taiwan's aid while China likely stands alone. Uh, the next uh, lesson learned, which is a big one, is the potential for nuclear risks. And this is incredibly scary because... I was going to ask, did nuclear weapons come up? So nuclear weapons did come up. Um, very early on, the China team decided to brandish nuclear weapons. Um, also later, after their nuclear threats had essentially gone um, ignored, they decided to detonate a nuclear weapon off the coast of Hawaii oh, in a demonstration attack. And so while no U.S. citizens or forces were hurt in that attack, it's still really significant. It's the first time, it would have been the first time that nuclear weapons would have been used since World War II. So the nuclear escalation risks are real, and that is something that we need to be planning for to ensure that it doesn't happen. What about cyber attacks? Did that come up in the game? So it did, not a whole lot, um, in part just because of what our focus was, which was really getting at some of those strategic level conversations and making some of those broad courses of action. But, you know, the red team, one of the big things that they decided to do was they wanted to cut off Taiwan's leadership from the rest of the world. So they wanted to cut off communications, which they did mainly via uh, space and cyber. I wonder if there's any particular recommendations that came out of this for the Pentagon. So we definitely have a lot. Um, you know, I think one of the big ones is uh, the need to have a better forward presence and forward posture and to ensure that that is a survivable forward posture. Another one is to strengthen some of our operational and strategic planning that we're doing with allies and partners, particularly if we are planning to fight alongside them. And then another one is trying to think of ways in which the United States, again, along with allies and partners, can shore up Taiwan's defenses. All right. Well, Becca, thanks uh, for telling us about this. And uh, let's hope we, uh, we learn some lessons from it before 2027. This is true. Thanks so much for having me. Coming next, could vaccine rationing be coming? Straight ahead on Government Matters, what happens if COVID funding runs out? We'll be right back. Despite warnings of a resurgence of COVID, Congress may not be willing to continue the fight and the White House may face difficult choices and trade-offs in pandemic response. Adam Cancrin is a White House reporter for Politico Pro. Adam, welcome to the program. Hi, nice to be here, thank you. Specifically, what is the White House asking for and how would those funds be used? 
Sure. So the White House is asking for $22.5 billion. And what that would be used for is essentially to continue the coronavirus pandemic response that we have seen now for the last couple of years. And that includes a number of things. That includes uh, developing and distributing the COVID vaccines, developing and distributing the treatments, things like Paxlovid that you take after you have COVID to cut your risk of, of ending up in the hospital, and making sure that we have enough tests on hand so that if cases go up, people want to go out and test themselves, they're going to be able to find those on the shelves. There are a lot of other things that, that go into that. Obviously, uh, get, get money for campaigns to make people aware that vaccines are out there and available. But the core elements that the White House is looking for right now is funding specifically to make sure we have those core tools, vaccines, treatments, tests, going forward here for the next several months uh, through, the, through the end of the year. So then what's the rationale for congressional Republicans denying the funding? Well, there's a couple things that they've said is, is one, they're not convinced at this point that there's a need for this funding. Um, one, of the, one of the objections is that Congress has already authorized trillions of dollars, right, for this COVID fight, and they wanna see exactly how that money has been spent before they now authorize more. Other people are skeptical, you know, now that we even need it. We're, we're through, obviously, a lot of the big crisis points right now. Cases are still going up again, but not nearly as badly, right, as if you remember in the winter. And so there are some Republicans who say, why do we even need to be giving the government more money? We've clearly got a handle on it, uh, and we can do that going forward. What the White House says, obviously, is that there's a lot more preparation to do, and that if you wait until we're in another crisis to allocate more money, then it's going to be far too late to do the kinds of things that would get us the tools we need immediately. So has the administration properly accounted for the pandemic relief funding already spent? They say that they have. They have shown us a, a large binder of essentially accounting of where, where money has gone, what's obligated, what's left in the accounts. And the, the bottom line is that while there has been a lot of money laid out already, that has all been allocated to different kinds of things. And there really is a dwindling amount of cash reserves left when it comes to how do we allocate and order vaccines for the fall? Uh, how do you make sure that you you have the money to pay uh, drug developers for treatments that we may need in the summer and, and later on in the fall and winter? And so that's the core message that, yes, there's been a lot of money spent, but there's gonna be need to be more down the road if we wanna be prepared for fall and winter when you see it, tend to see a lot of those COVID surges. So then let's talk about the options facing the administration if Congress doesn't approve the funding. It's pretty grim, it's pretty grim. So right now, one of the things that, that President Biden has made a, a key kind of part of his uh, federal response is this idea that if you want a vaccine, you can go out and get one. They're plentiful, they're widely available, every American who qualifies, go out and get it right now. And to be clear, you can still do that. What they are worried about now is whether that will remain true in the fall. Uh, the government and, and drug companies are working on essentially updated vaccines that would better target the Omicron strain of COVID that is kind of circulating right now. And they're worried that if, if that development goes well, we could have these so-called next generation vaccines but not have the money to buy enough essentially for everybody. And so what they've talked about is in a pinch, they would have to ration those vaccines and make them available only to the people who are highest risk. 
and not to everybody. And that would be a big step back for, for the federal response. A big change, I think, than something that we've gotten used to over the last year. And the same would go through, would be true with uh, COVID treatments. Right now, there's been a big effort to make them available. If you get sick, you can go out, talk to a doctor, get prescribed Paxlovid, and, and pick it up from the pharmacy. That may not hold true if there's not enough money to keep those stocks up. And has that contingency planning already started? And, and what's involved in, in gearing up for that plan? It, it has. It's a lot of kind of contingency planning and figuring out, okay, if we have this much money, how do we allocate it? Is there any, any other way that we can kind of make that, that funding stretch a little bit further? One thing down the road that has been talked about is that eventually there will be need to be a transition from the government paying for absolutely everything, which is unique kind of in the way that we do, do healthcare traditionally, to health insurance companies, private insurance taking over a lot of that kind of payment responsibility. And that would be a big shift. And the sources that I've talked to say, for vaccines especially, it would take about nine months to do that planning. So a lot of that is underway just in case. Uh, it would be really jarring, especially in terms of access for people who don't have insurance, people who are lower income. And there's a real focus on if that does come to pass, the government wants to make sure it goes as smoothly as possible and with as much notice. So it's a lot of, a lot of kind of combination of work in the immediate, trying to make sure that COVID stays under control now and also trying to figure out what are the scenarios depending on how much money Congress is willing to give six, seven, eight, nine months from now. All right, Adam, well, we'll continue to watch this as it uh, goes through Congress. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And you can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our website. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.